When you ask someone what they want from a phone, there's a good chance that the first thing they'll say is a great camera. And we've got Stephen Litchfield on to talk all about digital imaging and cameras on phones. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and today we're here to talk about digital imaging. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, is Adam wearing pants while he records this? And the answer is no. But you're also thinking, digital imaging doesn't sound that sexy. But you're wrong, and Stephen Litchfield is here to explain it all to us, and we'll get to that. But first, we have to dive into the news of the week. Before we get started, I just wanted to update you on a quick story. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Logitech doing right by its customers who had picked up a Harmony Express that subsequently got canceled. Well, I put in my order to Logitech, and as promised, they are shipping me a $350 Harmony Elite remote absolutely free. I don't have the remote yet, but it's on the way. I probably won't do a full review on it because I really don't have a setup that needs a Harmony Elite remote. But I definitely smell a tech yeah segment in our future. And speaking of tech yeah, we've got a nifty little device queued up for today. And it's a life-changing device that costs less than 20 bucks. So stay tuned for that. And I probably oversold it a little bit. Getting back to the remote, I can't say this enough. It's awesome that Logitech is not only doing right by its customers, but arguably going above and beyond for them. So I'm really happy to see that. I'll let you know when I get that in, and we'll talk about it. Also, by the way, apparently last week I misspoke a few times about Captain Marvel and the Galaxy Note 20, and a few of you brought it to my attention, and I thank you for that. But it's important for you all to understand one thing. I'm a moron. I say wrong stuff all the time, but I'm just happy that you're all paying attention enough to call me out on it, even if I'm not paying attention enough to catch it in the first place. So please do continue to call me out on it, because I promise you, I will continue saying stupid things. I've basically built a career off of it. NBC's unfortunately named Peacock streaming service launched on Wednesday, and while I have been insanely busy and unable to watch anything yet... I'm not fond of their UI. Fortunately, it doesn't cost me anything to try it out because Peacock partnered with Google to give people who sign up through the Android app free Peacock Premium for three months, and boy, I really hope I set my microphone right so I'm not getting plosives. That's a really sweet deal considering the normal trial is just seven days. Like Hulu, the premium tier still contains ads but unlocks a lot more content. Unlike Hulu, the free tier has content included, and that free content includes Psych 2 Lassie Come Home, which is pretty sweet. I just finished a rewatch of Psych and I missed that show. So go ahead and check out Peacock, but do it on Android if possible to score that free three months. Neowise is a comet visitor who's stopping by the neighborhood for the next few weeks before heading out for another 7,000 years or so. Neowise is a comet that passed very close to the sun and now can be seen with the naked eye from Earth. 
NASA says to look for the Big Dipper in the sky to the northwest and then look under the handle about 10 degrees up from the horizon to spot the little guy. In Chicago, it's been way too cloudy the past two nights to get a good look, but I'm hoping to sneak a peek while I'm out in the woods some evening next week. More on that out in the woods thing next week, BT dubs. So when you hear this, check out some Neowise in the night sky. I've left a couple links in the show notes that go over where and when to look. I just want to know, how come Neowise gets to leave this planet for 7,000 years, and can I get a ride? Move over, Spotify. You've got company. Just as the music streaming service was looking to become the BMOC in the podcasting game, Sirius XM just bought up popular podcast platform, again with the plosives, Stitcher, and its associated companies like Midroll, which is an extensive podcast advertising network. I should know, I used to work with Midroll. Sirius XM also bought up Pandora a long time ago and Simplecast, which is a podcast analytics platform. Clearly, Sirius XM wants to get in on the podcast game, and Sirius, I'm just saying, call me. Speculation has it that Sirius is really interested in mid-roll, and Stitcher is a nice-to-have as well. Sirius doesn't own a ton of exclusive podcast content, though with the Stitcher acquisition, it now owns Earwolf, the comedy podcast network. Just what Sirius will do with all these shiny new toys remains to be seen, but color this podcaster happy that podcasting as a platform seems to be gaining some momentum. By the way, please leave a review. Notorious Google phone leaker, um, Google, accidentally let an image of the Pixel 4a slip on the Google Play Store. (laughs) Whoops. The render appeared very briefly before being hastily pulled down, fueling speculation that the phone may get announced sometime ever, possibly. Like, seriously, this phone has had more false starts than a drag racer using bourbon for fuel, and I don't know anything about cars, but that sounds like it wouldn't work. And it also sounds like a waste of bourbon. Anyway, will the Pixel 4a ever come out so I can review the damn thing already? Here's hoping. Current rumors point to August 3rd, but honestly, who even knows at this point? I'm not even sure Google knows when it's coming out. Oh, hell yes. Fast food chain White Castle, and by the way, I'm using the terms fast and food very loosely when it comes to White Castle, but anyway. White Castle is looking at potentially using robots to man the fryer, and honestly, it's kind of about time. Look, folks, cooking White Castle burgers ain't exactly rocket science. The things are paper thin, so basically the second you drop them on the grill, they're ready to flip. Plus, the burgers are tiny, so people order them a dozen at a time. You can wait a hell a long time at White Castle for some sliders, which begs the question, should you ever wait for White Castle sliders? I mean, they're yummy, but really, your digestive system will not thank you. Having a robot there to automate this process could be amazing, and when and if this pilot program takes off, if it's within driving distance, I will be there to eat a burger cooked by a robot, because that's the future of food, baby, and I love my listeners enough to do it. And yes, I do feel bad for the thousands of White Castle cooks that might be displaced by these robots, except A, this is a pilot program, so who knows how feasible it'll actually be, and B, they're White Castle cooks. Come on, it's a fairly low bar. 
This week saw the unfortunate passing of nerd extraordinaire Grant Imahara. Imahara was a co-host of the popular show Mythbusters, a roboticist, and by all reports, just a great guy to be around. Imahara suffered a catastrophic brain aneurysm at the tender age of only five years older than me, and holy crap. It really just goes to show you that life is precious and fleeting, and you should always take every opportunity to live life to its fullest. I don't have a joke here. It just sucks. But we are going to have a brief moment of silence for Grant. Right meow. You will be missed, sir. And for what it's worth, you're leaving behind a wonderful legacy. R.I.P. Grant Imahara. Zoom announced a $600... <laughs> a what? A, six, a $600 tablet that... <laughs> A $600 tablet that runs Zoom. Um, guess what? I have a $100 tablet that runs Zoom. It's called a Kindle Fire HD8+. This tablet will be 27 inches, made by a company called D10. As in, you get D10 Chun if you buy a $600 Zoom box. I'm sorry, that was terrible, but I'm done now. The 27-inch tablet will come with Zoom pre-installed, and it will be presumably for people that... I don't know, love Zoom. And here's my favorite quote from the Verge article. Quote, while $599 may seem like a steep price to pay for a Zoom calling device when you can already Zoom from a phone or a computer, the idea seems to be that it's an easy way for newly remote employees to jump right into Zoom without having to deal with installing the software or setting up any complex equipment. May seem steep? Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. I'm thinking the marketing materials read something like, Look, you're a company that makes millions of dollars per year profit, and you've got a bunch of people at home now making all sorts of excuses to not attend meetings. Just send them this. Don't ask how much it costs, and then your employees will have to show up. Good luck, Zoom. Here's hoping you didn't have to buy these things in advance. Hey everyone, Apple wants to give back to the masses, so if you send $1,000 in Bitcoin to its Bitcoin wallet, it'll send $2,000 back to you! Isn't that just amazing? No, what's amazing is that anyone following Apple would actually fall for that. And Apple wasn't the only victim. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Joe Biden, Elon Musk, all of those accounts posted the same message, and unfortunately... It probably worked. Apparently, this was the result of social engineering. In other words, someone called an employee at Twitter, who is presumably now fired, and got them to release access to a tool that basically gives a golden key to any account you want. Um, whoops. Let's just say that HR is going to be busy for the next few months. Those how-to-not-give-away-secret-tools-of-the-company videos can take a long time to produce. I mean, you have to storyboard them and script them, find terrible actors. It's a process. I'm just a little upset that my account didn't get hacked because I'm a big deal, and what the hell? Mike Sievert, new CEO of T-Mobile, had his first uncarrier event on Thursday, at which he announced that T-Mobile would be offering its customers enhanced scam call blocking and caller ID for free, which I think one commenter put it best when they said, this shouldn't be uncarrier, this should be carrier. And I agree, I never really gave much thought to caller ID on my phone, but I guess this is a thing carriers charge for? In my world, the eye-opener of this whole event was when T-Mobile announced that it would provide a proxy number for people to use when signing up for loyalty cards and contests and stuff like that. Basically, it's for whenever you have to give your phone number to anyone you wouldn't ordinarily want a phone call from. Sievert compared it to a junk email account that some people create for the same purpose, but you know, 
for email, which is an interesting idea. And at first I was really excited about it, but then I started thinking like, that means I have to remember a whole other phone number for myself. And I've had my phone number since before I got married. I think my phone number goes back to the days when AT&T was called Singular. It's old, people. And so my phone number has been out there for literal decades. There's no way I'm calling that one back. Plus, my phone number is a palindrome, so I'm never changing it either, ever. And while this could be awesome for someone new signing up, it's not going to be great for me or my family, but, you know, maybe it'll work for you. So, good on you. Microsoft's Project xCloud has been around for a while as a closed beta project. Well, starting in September, Microsoft will be bringing xCloud to Xbox's Game Pass Ultimate for no additional charge. And what that means is you'll get the full library of titles for Xbox Ultimate, plus some of those titles will be available to stream online, aka Stadia. And by the way, Microsoft really doesn't want you to say, like Stadia, because that implies that Stadia has all the power here. And it does. Anyway, getting back to it, the Engadget article lays out all the different game streaming options around, including Stadia and NVIDIA, which I honestly forgot was a thing, and more. Overall, Microsoft seems to have the most inclusive all-around package, but it's also the most expensive, so take that for what you will. I never really felt Stadia, to be honest, and if I'm paying for a subscription, I'm going to want a Netflix-like experience of scrolling through titles to play, and I get that Stadia Pro offers that sort of, but it just seems like Microsoft has its stuff together a little bit more. And that being said, I'm not subscribing to any of them, so I guess never mind. And finally, if you're a fan of The Witcher, Superman, computers, gaming, or hunky men in tank tops, then you'll like this last story, and honestly, I think I covered literally everybody on the planet. Henry Cavill, and by the way, fun fact, if you Google how do you pronounce Henry Cavill, you get a video of him telling you how to say it. I love Google. Anyway, Henry Cavill decided to build a gaming PC and document the building experience, and he does it in a fun and funny way. And it might be accurate. I wouldn't know. I haven't built a PC since I was 16. But check out the link in the show notes, and maybe you can tell me if he did everything correctly, or if he should go work for The Verge. This week, I want to talk about a little device that my wife actually picked up for me for Father's Day, and it is life-changing. The name of the device is a mouthful, but it's the Anchor Rove Smart Charge F-Zero Bluetooth FM Transmitter. Long story short, it's a device that plugs into the car's power outlet, because we're not supposed to call it a cigarette lighter anymore, and it tucks away nicely. On the face are two USB Type-A ports for charging, a microphone hole, a digital readout, and three buttons across the bottom. As the name implies, this is a Bluetooth to FM transmitter, which allows you to connect your phone to your car if you don't already have a way to do that. These days, not only is Bluetooth coming standard in cars, but Android Auto and Apple CarPlay are too. But if you have an older vehicle, like my 2010 Mercury, that's not an option. You can replace the head unit like I did in my 2005 Pontiac, but this is actually a lot cheaper and a lot easier. You just plug it in and pair it up with your phone. Then you find an unused radio frequency in your area, in my case I went with a default 95.1, and you tune your radio to that frequency. Just like that, you're hands-free and you're listening to podcasts and music and making phone calls while keeping your eyes on the road. It's honestly a great little device, and normally, this is the part where I start talking about downsides, and here, 
there really isn't one. The top of the plug is a little on the chunky side, so at first I wasn't sure it would fit in the recessed area where the power outlet is, but it did. And another thing, and this is totally not Anchor's fault, but my car doesn't turn off the power outlets when the car is turned off, so I have to remember to turn off the power on the transmitter when I get out of the car. I would like there to be like an auto-off feature if you disconnect from Bluetooth for a long enough time, but it's really a minor point. The only thing that this thing doesn't do is add a screen to my car so I can enjoy all of Android Auto, but it's also less than $20 at the time of this podcast. So if you have a car without Bluetooth capability, grab this thing right now. It's awesome, and it's life-changing, and it'll cost less than a trip to the ATM. And yes, I realize calling this life-changing is probably overselling it quite a bit, but I don't care. I love it. Check out the write-up on benefitofadow.com and there will be a link. And as always, as an Amazon affiliate, I may get a small commission. But I'll also have the satisfaction of knowing that your life just got a little bit better. But mostly I'll have the commission. Cheers! Regardless of the phone, most people want to know about the camera, and that's because the smartphone has become the everyday camera, and that's huge. Not a lot of us give a lot of thought to digital imaging, just is the camera good or is the camera not good? Fortunately, we have friends who do give it a lot of thought, a lot of thought, to digital imaging. And folks, when I say that this guy is an expert, he is an expert with a capital E-X-P-E-R-T. He goes way back in this industry, back to before I graduated college, which was a very long time ago, trust me. So let's have a chat with Stephen Litchfield about digital imaging. My next guest on the Benefit of a Doubt podcast is a man who's been doing this since 1993, was originally writing for Palm Top Magazine, then moving on to All About Symbian, All About Windows Phone, and now runs his own race as an independent creator. He started his own smartphone review podcast in 2006, that's pre-iPhone, by the way, and has since accumulated over 550 podcasts and almost 400 videos. He's an imaging guy, and that's why we're talking to him. Steve Litchfield, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's it's wonderful to have you here. Um, my co-producer, Cliff, originally turned me on to you and said, you know, this is a guy that you should talk to. And so I did a little bit of uh, digging into everything and, and I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's get this guy on. And okay. the, main reason, the main reason I wanted to talk to you was because you've um, – you've, You've been, you've obviously, you've been around for a very, you, for a very long time. Yeah, you know, you've been doing this for a very long time. But you go back to the days of like Symbian and the Nokia 808 PeerView, and you actually still run comparisons in digital imaging to like current flagships compared to like the good old days back in the uh, in the in the old Nokia PeerView days. So, uh, tell us a little bit about that, if you could. Yeah, I'll take you back one step further, back to 2004, 2005. Nokia launched their N series in the smartphone world, which they're multimedia centric. And they started introducing Carl Zeiss lenses. And for their time, really sophisticated camera system. We had the N95, which was sort of world famous. That even made it to America. So you'll know that one. And that came out yeah. just before the Apple iPhone. And uh, the comparisons between the N95 and the iPhone were legendary because the iPhone had everything in terms of interface and future, futuristic, cool appeal, while the N95 had every specification the iPhone didn't. And over the next five years, of course, the, the iPhone gained function after function, feature after feature, and the components got upgraded. 
um, the and uh, the Nokia's and the Symbian devices started to wane away, wane away because of problems with Symbian and problems with Nokia and lack of resources, and it all just got right. a bit um, top heavy. So but they did have one last hurrah, which is the Nokia 808 PureView, which is the first device you mentioned, 2012, I think it was. And when it launched with a 41 megapixel sensor and computational photography, people just you know left, lost their minds. How could mm-hmm. how could you have a, a phone a camera phone with a 41 megapixel sensor? And what was happening was they're doing some very clever things in in, in a dedicated processor. In that case, it wasn't done in the main uh, chipset. Um, it, oversampling from that very large number of pixels down to very pure, noiseless, very 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 accurate five megapixel output. Then we had the Lumia 1020 in 2013. Same idea, except this time they added OIS. You had the very first sort of a high megapixel sensor with optical image stabilization, producing incredible photographs. And I still use that occasionally to this day. And the re- that taking it then forward to 2020, the reason I'm still going back, the 1020 still takes fo- photographs to this day that compared to those on the latest iPhones, the latest Huawei P40 Pro, they're not that dissimilar. If you take away the the really fancy periscope zoom lenses and so on. Just hearing that history put all together like that. And let's face it, some of my listeners probably weren't even born when you started doing <laughs> when you started doing this. So like hearing yeah. that history, it's really fascinating to see like how things evolved since then. And so now I want to ask, like, you know, you mentioned that the Nokia 1020, which it was an aspirational device back in back in my day. So, like, with the 1020 being as amazing as it was back in 2013-ish, that neighborhood, what's taken, like, how is that still managing to keep up with today? Like, what, I guess the question is, what, what did the 1020 do right? Or what have modern smartphones done wrong so that there's still even like a comparison? Because you look at any other specification from 2013, and it's not going to hold a candle to its equivalent today. But when it comes to digital imaging, like, what's, what's the deal, bro? <laughs> well, it's all about the five-year rule. I'm going to call it that, and I'll I'll give you an analogy. When the yeah. Apple iPhone was launched, 2007, um, Steve Jobs famously said, "We're five years ahead of the competition." And if you think about it, in some ways, he was. It took another five years for Android to be as fluid and as smooth and as usable for the man in the street as the iPhone. Now, at the same time, or just five, five years after that, Nokia, when they launched the Nokia 808. They were on record as saying the technology in this camera phone is five years ahead of the rest of the field in camera phones. And and I think they were right. That the, the thought of doing computational photography, like taking masses of pixels and doing really clever things with it, just didn't occur to any other phone manufacturers. I guess somewhere around 2013, 2014, they started to get the idea. And 2016, 2017, we started seeing Google, for one, doing some clever mm-hmm. things in the time domain by um, doing... Uh, compiling multiple captures and then fusing them together. Apple started doing some smart HDR, but it has taken a good five years at least since the 1020 launched. Um, So they were five years ahead of the field for other manufacturers to think, okay, well, we've gone as far as we can with the physical limits of these tiny sensors and tiny apertures, tiny lenses. What else can we do to improve? And the answer is you do clever things with, with bits and bytes, ones and noughts. 
Interesting. Okay. All right. So a lot of it is a lot of it is in the software. So like, if that's the case, then when it comes to like modern flagship phones, like how much better can the imaging get if a lot of it is software based these days? Like, where where do we go from here? I guess then, if 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 we're just now catching up to the Lumia 1020, what's <laughs> the next step? I think we have, of course, that with the 1020. Of course we have, because that was, uh, it, with the best will in the world, even with my comparisons, um, once you start adding in zoom and wide angle, then you go way beyond what the 1020 could do because you're, right. you've, changed, you've moved the goalpost. You're saying, okay, we now require you to do the 10 times zoom. We now require you to do wide angle shots. Um, I think we have kind of plateaued. I mean, we've got to the point where the iPhone 11 Pro in my pocket now is just about the best imaging all round I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. including the Lumias. I've got um, uh, various um, Android phones, including the Huawei P40 Pro here. And that, again, I would say is better than the 1020 and probably better probably better than the iPhone across the board, but let down, of course, by infamously being blocked from using Google services. So I, with the best will in the world, I've got the probably the best imaging phone in the world right now, sat on my desk, and I can't use it because there's no Google services. But I, I think we're kind of plateauing in that you have to be doing what I'm doing and literally looking at the individual pixels in order to be able to really tell the difference or doing crazy things with Zoom, like trying to get usable 20 times Zoom from a, a camera phone, which I still think is a bit of a gimmick. Right, right. So let's actually, let's actually, since we transition nicely on over to that, let's talk about Samsung and the Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultra. Now, yeah. keeping in mind that I've never held, and I've never held that phone in my hand, I got into this game just a little bit too late to get on board that train. So um, talk about the, now, Everything that I've seen and everything that I've read about the Galaxy S20 seems to indicate that despite the claims of the 100x space zoom, um, <laughs> it, it seems like you can get up to about 2030x, give or take, and then after that you're, you're pretty much looking at a, a jumbled mass of pixels. Can you comment on that a little bit? I would think you won't get anywhere near that far. I was these uh, S twenty Ultra has a four times actual optical zoom, mm-hmm. uh, and then they you got some digital zoom on that because it's a forty eight megapixel sensor, so you can do some smart cropping Lumia ten twenty style into that, which gives you up to five times. And mm-hmm. Samsung are very good with doing um, inter- what I call interpolative zoom, which is taking a digital image and, and doing old-fashioned digital zoom by making up the pixels in between. But they do it very, very well in terms of their algorithms. So in practice, you can get to 10 times and the result is usable by most people. If you go to 20 times and 30 times, it's a gimmicky shot. If you actually look at the, the details in your shot, it's just made up. It's made up information. It's not real information. I wouldn't go beyond 10 times, but 10 times from a zoom from a camera phone. A it's phone still amazing. Pocket, which is only a centimeter thick. That is incredible. Yeah. Right. And actually, as it as it happens within reaching uh, within arm's re- reach, I actually have a, Gal- a Samsung Galaxy S4 Zoom, which you'll recall was yeah. uh, was was basically a Samsung Galaxy S4 with a uh, with a, a a DS or not a DSLR, excuse me, a, a point and shoot duct taped to the back of it, basically. <laughs> Um, and and that actually boasted up to 10x optical zoom. So I thought it was interesting that Samsung kind of topped out where they topped out 
<laughs> what they topped yeah. out in Galaxy S4 territory, which would have been like, what, 2014, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, I so, have the one following your S4 Zoom. I can tr- one-up you because I've got the Samsung Galaxy K Zoom here, which was the one that followed it, the successor, which was ah. just sm- smoother, less bulbous, but it was still very large and very thick oh, for, yeah. for, for a camera oh, phone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having, you know, a... A four-inch telescopic optical zoom coming out of the back of your phone is still a neat trick, and I still like to pull it out and you know amaze people to the day this day down the pub when we're having it geeking out with all our phones. I bring out the K zoom and I press a button, go to ten times zoom, and the four inches of metal slides out of the back of a phone. It's it's quite fun. <laughs> I I wonder actually uh, might be make it for an interesting video to do like a shootout between that K zoom and the Samsung Galaxy S twenty to see who does the zoom better these days. Yeah, the K-Zoom will, will, will win in good light because the optical zoom obviously will be some a parts di- um, software, digital zoom, it's bound to, it has to. Having said that, the K-Zoom and the US 4 zoom there, the, the sensor wasn't that large and it wasn't that sophisticated. It was old technology. And the modern sensors are so much more sensitive and there's so much, say, processing power behind the images and sorting out and, and enhancing edges, reducing yeah. noise and so forth. I think this, in good light, that your S4 zoom will still win by a, a, a narrow margin in all other conditions that the modern Samsung will, of course, win. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, there's a there's a prediction for you. <laughs> and if I ever get around to uh, making that video, I will definitely uh, <laughs> I'll definitely quote you. So um, let's transition over to Nokia today. Um, since you are a Nokia fan, since you are um, since you are, a, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, so. What? How are we feeling about Nokia these days? We've seen a few mid-range phones coming out of Nokia. We want to. We've seen. I want to say one flagship-ish phone, and then <laughs> not um, really. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. I mean, we're 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 using a very liberal uh, definition of the term <laughs> flagship. So then we saw the Nokia Nine come out, and how are we feeling about Nokia these days? Well, of course, your listeners, I'm sure, will realise that the Nokia these days is not the Nokia of old. Totally different company. Of course. course. Um, It's HMD Global, which is also a Finnish company. And to be fair, they do employ some of the same um, Nokia um, people. However, Mm -hmm. not the core imaging engineers, which is a salient point. Because when they they launched the Nokia 9 PureView, which was supposed to be the return of the PureView brand, and uh, Mm -hmm. Nokia is the new Nokia is coming out with an imaging flagship. It had lofty ambitions, and the idea was to take five cameras. So I think, I think it was something like does it two, three color and two black and white, something like that, mm-hmm. um, all spaced out in a ring. And then you take five shots. And then from that, all the massive imaging data, you can do wonderful things in terms of de- shallow depth of field and effects and reducing noise and, and even zoom. But unfortunately, the, the, the software just wasn't there. The expertise just wasn't there to do all the computational stuff they needed to do. I, I had the nine... Nokia 9 PureView in for review and the shots it was taking weren't very good and they weren't very good not because the the raw data wasn't there if you took a look at the raw shots the RAW files massive mm-hmm. files coming out of the thing there was loads of detail and loads of quality but they just weren't coming out into the JPEGs that the users were seeing and it was taking forever so you're like 15 or 20 seconds sometimes to even get a JPEG after taking Oof. one photograph and that's just ridiculous. So, um, yeah. uh, so whether they underspecified and they did, they should have used a more powerful GPU or a dedicated processor or just much, much better software, better optimized. And they never got round to using those five cameras spaced out for doing 
um, solid state, you know, computational zoom. But Google with their Pixel um, 3, I think, series, they started it, and now the Pixel 4 series, certainly the, the 3 series, with a single lens, they were doing software zoom by taking multiple frames, jigg- jiggling, using the natural natural hand wobble of your hand, or if, and if it were on a tripod, they'd literally jiggle, use the OIS to jiggle the lens around to get multiple mm-hmm. frames, and then they'd interpolate between those multiple frames to give you software zoom. If they could do all that with one lens, Nokia had five lenses, five <laughs> sensors, and managed to get precisely zero the way to any kind of zoom. So a huge disappointment. The Nokia 9 Pure View was basically laughed out of the starting gate by almost every reviewer. And Nokia, mm-hmm. I think, blacklisted me on day two of of, of the that appropriate Twitter spat. I never got an official review. I had to borrow one from a user, but uh, it didn't make Ouch. any difference. They, nev- they never improved it significantly. They never trusted their own work enough to send it to people like me who they knew would put it absolutely through its paces. There, mm-hmm. is, there are rumours of a, a follow-up, a Nokia 9.3 Pure View. So... It remains to be seen. My gut feel is they'll just go down with the herd. They'll do a high megapixel sensor, as many of them mm-hmm. are now, 48 megapixels, 64, even 108, um, and just oversample down. And that will produce good enough shots, but it won't be anything special compared to the Samsungs and Huawei's and Xiaomi's of this world. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. So that's actually a good transition on over... Um, these days, obviously, the headlines are dominated by megapixel count. You know, we we started with the 48 megapixel cameras that started rolling out. Yeah. I want to say late 2018, early 2019, jumped up to 64. Um, and then now we've got the Motorola Edge with the 108 megapixel sensor, if I remember that number correctly. And so now I know that photography is more than megapixels, you know, obviously. So like... Let me ask you this: Is the is the continual hype machine over megapixel count muddying the waters for folks that really do appreciate true photography? Absolutely, it is. I completely okay. is it, it's even confusing for me. I have to work out whether each phone is pixel binning or oversampling, and how many times is it doing it, and what is its default resolution, and is it offering the user? the entirely stupid chance to shoot a 108 megapixel photo, which no one in their right mind ever, ever needs. It's all very confusing. I would much rather see, as Samsung have been doing on their their sort of lower end flagships, things like the S9 range, S10 range, um, just taking a a really, really good 12 megapixel shot with excellent OIS and, and dual aperture and and doing a very very good job with with fairly large um, pixels to go to 108 megapixels where every pixel is under a micron under a micron wide is is kind of crazy but I think it just shows that the the, the manufacturers are so confident that their chipsets that the processors are now have got way more power way more processing power in their eight cores than you'll ever need for regular um, phone work so why not put all that processing power to work and just feed it a absolute mass of pixels pixel data from these 108 <laughs> megapixel images and say okay mm-hmm. now we can do some really clever things with this this mass of data if the chipsets weren't so fast then we wouldn't be going down this route how how have social media sites impacted digital photography in terms of like smartphone cameras and whatnot. Absolutely. I mean, social media is how most people consume most images, including people consuming my images. And it's always a tiny bit galling when I take a lovely sunset or a photograph of a flower or something. And I post it to Twitter and Instagram. And I, although people make nice comments, I just know that the, the, they, the final image they're seeing is not as high quality as, as the one I took. 
for a start, it's usually downsampled in terms of resolution. But even then, if the resolutions are kept the same, the quality isn't there. Some I posted a photograph the other day of myself um, taking in portrait mode with a smartphone, and I, I looked at the original on the phone, and the original was incredible quality. I was wearing a, a jacket with a zip, and you could see every single um, cog, every single interleaved piece of metal in the zip. I then posted mm-hmm. it to social media and I got comments back saying, well, that's rubbish. You know, I, I looked at the, look at the zip on your jacket and there's so many artifacts and so much um, rubbish there at the pixel level. And I'm thinking, no, you haven't remotely seen what I've posted. So, <laughs> right? so, so social media photography consumption is, is a com- completely bastardized system. And, but it is, it is what, what it is. It, you just have to bear in mind that it's not how most of us would like our images preserved forever, which is why it's critically important to, Back up the photos you take to a service like Microsoft OneDrive or pay for Google Photos full full quality or keep your own local backups so that later on, three years down the line, you can go back to that sunset or your photograph of your family and friends and, and do something with it and maybe enhance it or crop it or and without mm-hmm. having to rely on a horribly downsampled, r- reduced quality social media image because that's all you've got left. Yeah, I admit I am guilty in the uh, in the uh, high quality Google Photos <laughs> storage um, option. I, I don't pay for the uh, the full quality. I honestly probably should, but at the <laughs> same time, you know, I guess I'll just pay that price when we're when we're all like looking at photos on twelve K screens in twenty years, and and they'll be like they'll be the size of postage stamps by then. <laughs> so. I have to say that for me. Because I'm, I do this sort of thing for a living. Uh, rather sadly, about eighty percent of all the photos I ever take are test shots, testing various camera phones. So ultimately, once the article's been written or the video's been done, then they can actually be discarded. It's not the end of the world. But any, I do have a folder on on various online services, and if I take a really special photograph of a of family or friends, I just make a note to copy the original JPEG up there, and that might only be a few hundred photographs over a decade. But it's all my really favourite stuff. Awesome. So. Just a just a couple of quick questions for you before we go ahead and wrap this up. So, what is like one? What is one thing that you would recommend that everybody do on their smartphone camera? Like, is there like an option that you should turn on, or is there like some some way you should frame a shot, or like what's just some quick elevator pitch advice for people using smartphone cameras in twenty twenty? Yeah, I would say light is the biggest factor that people don't always take on board, whether it's they haven't got enough light to take a really good shot. And there's just there's too much noise that with the best will in the world, the best camera phone in the world. That, that If you shoot in the dim living room, um, we're not in the days of Xenon flashback in the old Nokia days where the, you could light up a room with a, oh, a searingly lit white flash that would light every single part of a room, sadly. But we have, for most occasions, the modern camera phones are very capable if you know the limitations. Light is the biggest factor and if you go to any photography manual or photography magazine you'll see an article in every single issue about something to do with light because light is absolutely fundamental to camera phones and if you get your mind thinking about how much light there is and what you can do with it to light whatever subjects in front of you then you're halfway there Hmm. So one last thing I want to talk to you about was night mode. A lot of phones are coming out with night mode on their cameras these days. And I'm kind of curious as to what your take is on night night mode. And in, in, in my world, there's kind of two schools of thoughts. My old podcast partner, Joe Hindi, used to complain about night mode all the time because it would – 
in his words, looked like you took a phone, uh, looked like you took a photo in the middle of a day, and it just wasn't. So it was basically like a false representation of what was actually happening at that time because of all the brightening and everything that was happening in the shot. Whereas other folks, myself included, would be like, well, yeah, but we can actually see what was happening as opposed to like being in this, you know, dark field. You know, we can actually see what's going on. So like, I'm kind of curious as to like what your take is on that. Who's doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? You know, uh, just uh, speak to night mode a little bit in general. Yeah, I mean, the people who did uh, night mode, as it's called right, first were Google, who kind of invented the idea of not only using multi-frame capture to get better HDR in daytime, but, uh, hey, let's take 10 captures at night and put them together to give us uh, more pixels, more data that will lighten up the shot, where normally you'd have to you know, use a Lumia 1020 on a three-second exposure or something crazy. All of mm -hmm. a sudden, we can do it with fast chipsets and 10 or 20 exposures taken over two or three seconds. And it doesn't matter if your hand wobbles because the software is going to align them all. And Google did it right, in my opinion, and most companies do it right because the night mode is a separate thing. So you've got the option. You're in a, a low-light scene. If you want to capture accurately, use the standard auto mode. You can perhaps tap on an object to expose the scene how you want to, and you take the shot, and it's a fairly accurate and hopefully fairly noise-free good photograph. If you want to go for hyper-real you know, night into day, then that's what the Google night mode can do. But it's a separate mode and you choose it, choose it knowing it's going to give you an unrealistic result, but it might be incredibly cool. And there are some people out there, Vlad Savov, X The Verge, he does some amazing shots. I think it's in Japan where he's now, where he's doing Google night mode shots and then enhancing them later on in Photoshop and so un un utterly unreal and but amazing shots. Um, Apple unusually, I think they've done it in a very cool manner, but they've done it wrong. In that, if you take a photograph with the iPhone 11 Pro in low light, it automatically, by default, goes into a night mode, a multi-second mode, and lightens up. And yes, it is a very good image, but it's not necessarily as dark as it was to your eyes. It's not even remotely as dark as it was to your eyes. Right. Right, absolutely. Awesome. Well, you know, Steve, it has been wonderful chatting with you, and um, you have been wonderful dealing with the uh, issues that we had recording, which will not show up in this final recording, <laughs> but I'm still going to uh, tip a cap to you because you got, because you uh, you have been a peach during this whole process. So um, I, what I want to do is go ahead and roll out the red carpet for you and let you tell my listeners what you're doing these days and where they can find you on the Internet. Yeah, well, th thanks to your kind introduction, they know most of the things I'm doing, but uh, <laughs> I'm actually I'm still doing most of them and, and doing them all in parallel, which means that best if they just go to stevelitchfield.com. There is a T in the surname Litchfield, stevelitchfield.com. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes, and most things are linked from there, including my uh, phone show videos and also my audio podcast. So start there. You betcha. Absolutely. Thanks again, Steve, for coming on, and we'll hope to have you again on soon. Cheers. Bye. So that's going to do it for today's podcast. I'd like to thank Stephen Litchfield for coming on and learning us all about why we should all use Lumias. I'm just kidding. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for doing all of his work behind the scenes. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.